Welcome back to 10 Blocks. I'm your host, Brian Anderson, and joining us on today's show is Michael Gibson. Michael is the co-founder of the 1517 Fund, a venture capital firm formerly based in San Francisco and now in Los Angeles, and we'll get to that in a minute. He's written on technology and innovation for The Atlantic, National Review, Reason, and recently a couple of excellent pieces for City Journal. You can follow him on Twitter at William underscore Blake. His latest essay, which we released online last week and appears in our spring 2020 issue, is called America's Havana, and it's about San Francisco's ongoing struggle with public order and other serious urban problems, even before the COVID-19 pandemic struck. Michael, thanks very much for joining us. Happy to be here. Now, let me read the very vivid opening paragraph to your story. Quote, on January 8th, London Breed, San Francisco's mayor, was sworn in for her first full term. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi congratulated her in a tweet saying, I look forward to working with you to continue San Francisco's proud tradition of standing as a guiding light for progress across America. I don't know what definition of progress Pelosi is using, but any candid observer would rate the city a catastrophe. Mayor Breed was inaugurated on the same day that I moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles after 10 years working at the cutting edge of science and technology. You then begin your brief tour of the reasons you and others like you are leaving the city, starting with public order and hygiene. So could you give a description of of how the city was, was kind of crumbling over the last several years in these areas? For sure. Uh, I, it's hard to remember when I first started noticing these things, but the, they, they started off slowly and they, and they picked up. I think for sure some of the issues like homelessness have always been a problem in, on the West Coast and in cities like L.A., even uh, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle. But sometime throughout the 2010s, the teens, um, you know, it really picked up. And, and it started to become very stark. The city seen from a view, uh, let's say you're standing on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge and you look at the city, it, it is just resplendent. It is really one of, one of the most beautiful cities in America. It's true. Yeah. And you're just excited to see what's going on inside. And, and then you get closer. And, and, and then that's where it hit me one time where uh, I came back down from uh, the Sonoma region. You come down the 101, you shoot through the Robin Williams Tunnel, and you get that, that view of the city. And it just looks like the future of the world. I mean, in the last, with the, the, this you know, veritable gold rush in, in the last tech boom, uh, so much wealth has been created. Uh, Silicon Valley, you know, became in San Francisco itself became synonymous with Silicon Valley. And so there was a sense in which this was the city of the 2000s, um, you know, that it was going to be the next Florence or uh, Athens, you know, the, that it would be a cultural center. But then you pull in to the city with your car. And, and yeah, I noticed uh, there's just, you know, drug users out in the open. Uh, this not in, in bad neighborhoods like the Tenderloin district, but even in the, in the main areas of the city where in the financial district, um, there's human feces all over the place, uh, that increased over the last decade. So anecdotally that stuff started picking up. Then, uh, the stories broken in, in the local newspapers and, uh, and then whatever countermeasures were taken, they failed. And so it just reached a point by the end of the decade where, 
I, I know lots of friends were uncomfortable walking around at night. It was not uh, unheard of, you know, to have people harass you, yelling at you incoherently, and in in those kinds of issues. So that that was the the lower layer, and then and then you started to wonder about the deeper stuff, like what are the underlying issues? Um, lots of conflicts erupted over the last decade. The the, the Google buses started uh, because a lot of their employees wanted to live in the city. Uh, and then commute down to Mountain View, likewise with Apple and Facebook. And so they started uh, these commuter buses, and these commuter buses would take these employees from the city down the peninsula. You had protests against these buses, uh, really uh, strong backlash against the tech community. And and the tech community got blamed uh, for for this, Um, you know, that somehow they were crowding out the public transportation, that they were driving up the rents. Um, and that's when I, I really started to examine the underlying problems in the city. Uh, the tech companies were being scapegoated, but it, it turned out that, um, you know, there are a lot of regulations and zoning rules that prevent people from building any, anything new in the whole city. And so you had the same stock of housing, the same, pretty much the same stock of office space and more people trying to get into the city of the future. And, and that led to a, a lot of uh, social problems. So I don't, it started. It, 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 Everything it started. began to come together in a bad way. In other words, uh, driving you to leave. Yeah, that's fact. right. So it was this weird combination of uh, you had the expensive because of the limited housing. Uh, yeah, you well, had, I want to go back to that in a minute. Maybe we could talk about that in a little more detail. Um, but then you ha- you also had the appalling, which was this mismanagement of the homelessness situation. And crime was starting, is starting to go up there. I'm, I'm not sure post-pandemic what it looks like, but the city's got a, a very significant uh, burglary and theft problem. Yep. You know, a lot of shoplifting going on, cars getting yeah, broken. Something on average, like 60 cars are broken into per day. That That's pre-COVID. I who knows what it is now? But, uh, you know, there are famous stories. Alex, uh, Alex Rodriguez, the uh, former Yankee sports, now sportscaster, he was... Uh, late to a game at the Giants Stadium and, and found a parking space on the street. He stupidly or foolishly left. I, I don't know. Maybe it was like necklace or some kind of jewelry in the car worth hundreds of thousands of dollars was broken into uh, and, and stolen. But yeah, just just the sheer number of these sorts of uh, petty crimes, theft, vandalism, uh, led to San Francisco becoming the leader in the nation in 2018. Uh, 2019 still still high and uh, so I you know I don't know we have a mayor or San Francisco had a mayor uh, there's a police force but uh, they did not seem to be willing to enforce uh, lower level crimes yeah that that's uh, that's quite striking you'd like to think that the city's political class and voters would recognize uh, this breakdown in order rise in crime uh, yet the Brand new district attorney there, uh, uh, Chase Bowden, um, campaigned on not prosecuting quality of life infractions. Um, I'm curious, how did he win, and you know what's what's your sense of of him against this backdrop? San Francisco has a history of of being progressive, and perhaps that's what Pelosi meant when she said it's a beacon of progress. Um, you know, the last Republican mayor was elected in his first term, I believe, in 1956. I think he right. won a second term, uh, but 
you know, ever after that, it's been run by uh, Democrats. So pretty much one party city for a long time. Uh, there are more moderate wings in that party. Uh, and there are, you know, very far left wing members of that party. And I think Chesa Odin won uh, due to some of the mechanics of, of voting in the, in the city for these types of positions, um, where I forget the exact name of the mechanism, but but if if votes are split, it, it'll go to, you know, if, if let's say there are three candidates and two of them are, are, are similar to each other so that they split the vote, that'll open it up to someone who's who's more radical like Chesa Boudin. And, and that's and so, kind of what happened here, right? Yeah. And, and so that's how he won, in, in essence, you know, two opponents who were probably more moderate than he was split the vote. But nevertheless, it's still... Uh, scary to me, at any rate, that someone with his resume and and his public uh, positions would 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 get elected at all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, not enforcing uh, low level quality of life crimes is one thing. He has very ambitious goals on uh, establishing some kind of retributive justice, or sorry, no, uh, restorative justice um, program. Uh, you know that that there was a humorous moment in one of the debates while he was running where. In addressing this car, uh, the the broken window problem with with automobiles and theft, he thought he thought the city should set up a business where uh, you know if they if they caught the uh, the thief uh, that then the thief would have to work for some period of time in the window repair program that the city would run. (laughs) Yeah, this just seemed like total uh, craziness to me. Uh, but I guess it appealed to enough voters that he was able to win. Uh, you know, I, I believe he he served as a translator and advisor. I, d- I don't know in what exact capacity, but he had a direct uh, relationship with Hugo Chavez, the late dictator. Um, this, to me, uh, is, is the kind of relationship that should just raise all sorts of red flags uh, in the media and in the public. And, and the fact that it didn't, I think, speaks to how far radical right. San Francisco has become. You know, the, the title of the piece is America's Havana. I, I chose that because, one, uh, it's striking to me that Havana is crumbling on the edges, but still looks the same as it does since in the 1950s. <laughs> you even have people riding around in cars from the 1950s. Right, um, and all that, and, art, that lovely architecture preserved. Yeah. As if and in San Francisco, uh, you know, it's not on the, you don't see things crumbling necessarily to that extent in, in neighborhoods, but it is striking to me that it looks the same as it does, as it did, sorry, in, ni- in the 1960s. You can watch a movie like the Steve McQueen classic Bullet with the famous uh, car chase scene as he's riding up and down the hills of San Francisco. And, and sure enough, if you look at those same locations today, they look the same. Uh, so three, four story um, Victorian townhouses, uh, bay window apartments, that sort of thing. And, and it's all the same. And that's due to those land use regulations. Yeah, I wanted to get back to that because you you, you listed that as one of the other reasons you've decided to um, move to Los Angeles. Uh, you know, the cost of housing in particular is a, is a huge problem in San Francisco. It's a problem in many, you know, successful cities these days, but but I think nowhere in America uh, is it is it more of a problem than in San San Fran? I think the medium price uh, for one bedroom you mentioned is uh, the most expensive in the nation. It's about three thousand seven hundred dollars a month. That's the median price. A single family home, on average, will run you 
you know, well over a million dollars. What's behind the, the these astronomical prices? I guess it's really a supply problem, as you suggest, and it has something to do with the way the city approaches land use. Right. They it it has the strictest land use rules in in the nation. Uh, just probably the strongest NIMBY uh, lobbyists <laughs> you can imagine. Uh, that goes back for some time. You can you can look at any election from the 1970s through the 80s and, and 90s, and and people are complaining about new construction, whether it's commercial or or private residences. Uh, so you know the main rule uh, is is that height requirement. Uh, nothing can uh, outside of something like 78, 79 percent of the city you can't build higher than four stories. Um, and then there are all sorts of other problems. You know, the permit process is the highest stakes game of shoots and ladders known to man. Uh, right. There are multiple stages to this process, multiple committees that you need to obtain per- approval from. And any step along the way, after all the money spent and the effort made, you can whoop, sloop down the slide and uh, end up back in square one. And, and there are some crazy examples over the years. Some guy, it took him like, I think he started in 1978 to build four uh, units in an area of town called Bernal Heights, spent $2 million, and, and only in the last year was able to, to gain approval. Uh, those stories are not uncommon. And uh, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a real supply crunch. Uh, you limit the number of houses, you keep them the same, but you add more money and you add more people. Well, that's simple economics. The prices are going to go up. Now, we talk a lot on this podcast and and certainly write about in City Journal, the New York City subway system, uh, which has a lot of problems even before the pandemic. Uh, the, the New York transit system had seen you know a real deterioration in performance, uh, delays which have led to overcrowding, uh, homelessness uh, becoming a problem uh, on the subways themselves. Um, you know, enormous financial woes, again, even before the pandemic. But I, I don't think in our previous podcasts uh, discussing San Francisco issues that we've really talked much about the Bay Area Rapid Transit System or BART system. Could you talk a little bit about that and how it's performing? Yeah. So one of the interesting things about the, the Bay Area is that it's, it is so fragmented in terms of its political organization. Uh, so when it came time to build a public transportation system, I think it was greatly limited by that fragmentation. So it was uh, originally planned that the, the BART system was was going to be a lot like the New York subway system uh, in it in the way that it helps unify the the many boroughs. But uh, in the original plans, I think for the BART, there were lines that were supposed to go up up in north into Marin. Uh, across the East Bay uh, into Oakland and then down south. Uh, what happened is that it, uh, you know, they couldn't get all these different municipalities on board. And so now the BART is, is pretty much limited to the east side of, of San Francisco. And then uh, it travels under the bay into the, into the East Bay, Oakland, and, and the area. Uh, it heads it's down south on the peninsula, but stops just short of just past SFO. Uh, so not a quite, it, you know, it doesn't have a lot of range. Um, you know, it was built in the 1970s. I think some of the engineering choices uh, may have been fine at the time, but uh, now the wear and tear on them is started, starting to show itself. In the last few years, uh, for me, this has been what, I think it, it's around town, it's known as the, the BART uh, howl, 
or um, or screech. Uh, the wheels they made are, are aren't flanged wheels, and so the the the, the noise is deafening, especially in certain patches. Metal on metal, it's so true. Yeah, and 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 this has a quality of life uh, consequence where. For instance, the the high price of, of living in, in San Francisco, I know some people have, have thought about moving to the East Bay, but it makes the commute even worse because you can't have conversations. You can't listen to podcasts. You have to stop your music as you travel underground uh, and listen to this howl that seems to be in some sort of deranged contrapuntal uh, noise because it's like there's a high level shriek and a low level rattle at the same time. It's, it's quite jarring. Um, so, you know, I looked into that and, and, you know, there's some other news stories out or uh, blog posts about, about the construction of those wheels and why, uh, they failed to make the right choices. It's pretty interesting. Uh, but for me, it, it, it became symbolic for, uh, this lack of uh, state capacity or governance capacity where, uh, you know, these, the, the infrastructure of the city itself is, is not living up to its, uh, purpose. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to close with a couple of questions. Um, one, you know, you'd already decided to relocate before the COVID-19 pandemic, but what's your sense of the attitude among other firms located in San Francisco or, or you know, more broadly in the Bay Area? Are, are you hearing other companies thinking along the same lines? And then, um, you know, after asking, after answering that question, I, I'd love to hear about what it's been like moving to Los Angeles, uh, basically simultaneous with a big lockdown in that city as a result of the pandemic. What what's it been like in LA? So those those two questions are, are other other firms, you know, leaving uh, San Francisco or thinking about it, and then what's going on in LA. Well, the quality of life issues and the cost of living uh, had it started to affect my work. So we run a early stage venture capital fund. We make investments in companies at the earliest stage. So often we're, we are the first money in. It's a few people and, and, and some proof of concepts. Um, and, and the Bay Area, you know, Silicon Valley and, and, and San Francisco to some degree have always been known for being the hub of innovation and specifically garage startups, right? I mean, you think Hewlett Packard, uh, Apple, Google, they all literally started in garages. Well, if the garage costs a million bucks, you're not going to be able to have a startup in it. Um, and it occurred to me that the Grateful Dead also had a house in Haight-Ashbury. Uh, that house is, you know, the ones around it on Zillow sell for like three million plus now. So you can't have a garage band either if the garage yeah. costs a million bucks. Uh, so for my work over the last decade, we just noticed fewer and fewer of the companies that we were investing in were uh, located in the Bay. They were starting elsewhere. Uh, so the need for me to, to live in San Francisco decreased, uh, when I, when you, you know, there's almost like a little perfect storm for you guys publishing this piece, because on the same day that you did on the, on the internet, uh, Twitter announced that it was permanently allowing its employees to work remotely. And Jack Dorsey had uh, mentioned something along these lines too, hinted at it in a quarterly call with investors last quarter. Uh, but but yes, it, the story broke on the same day. And so I think there's a lot of conversations happening now about the degree to which companies will remain remote or, you know, maybe it's not 50 percent, maybe it's, uh, you know, 25, but it's certainly not going to be zero. 
so I think we're going to start to see an exodus out of San Francisco, more companies either working remotely or, or you know, maybe decentralizing their operations to some degree, just because of the quality of life issues that we've talked about and, and the high cost. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think Twitter's a w- real bell- bellwether. There are going to be others for sure. A um, lot of, uh, yeah, just go on Twitter now and <laughs> you can see a lot of prominent VCs and, and founders yeah, talking about it. Um, you know, an enormous amount of attention online. It's, it's, uh, and, and the responses, reading the responses in the letters is fascinating because it, it does clearly suggest that a lot of San Francisco residents and other firms are beginning to see or have been seeing the same kind of things you are and getting fed up about them. It's going to hurt San Francisco should this happen to any great yeah. degree. If you look at the 2010 budget, I think it was about $6.4 billion. Uh, the 2020 budget for the city uh, was almost twice that, 12 billion. Uh, a lot of those revenues are coming from uh, taxes collected on on uh, tech companies and their employees who uh, live and shop and spend money in the city. Uh, so should that drain, I think the the city, which is already stretched uh, financially, is is going to feel a pinch. Uh, so I, you know, the, I I chose to move down here before COVID. I. I I sense this is an accelerant on, on that trend of, of decentralizing the office some, to some degree, maybe to a, to a big degree. Um, you know, L.A., uh, I, I moved down here not uh, because there's a hotter tech scene uh, and, and I was looking for companies here. I, I moved here uh, for a few reasons. One is that it is a main transportation hub. A lot of our investments occur across North America. So, um, being located not far from LAX, I, I thought I could travel quite easily. Uh, I wanted the the nicer weather and the beaches, um, but but maybe what was the most appealing thing to me uh, was the way San Francisco the, those dynamics uh, we've discussed have also made it very much a monoculture. Um, in part, my industry, the tech industry, but really, when when people talk about that, it's the big tech co's, Google, Facebook, Apple. Uh, that you know they've driven out uh, the prices. Uh, it's like you've driven out all the artists and all the different types of people. Uh, so it's, there, there's only one kind of culture in the city, and so Los Angeles to me represented something where you still had all these different uh, types of people in the city, whether it's entertainment, aerospace, uh, just a larger number, and, and, and that appealed to me. Post COVID, uh, it's hard to tell what's going to happen. I mean, the mayor here is quite stringent, and in, in the city administrators, uh, they're threatening to lock down uh, the city at least through the summer, maybe until there's a vaccine. That's not quite clear. So, uh, you know, maybe the quality of life here won't be as good. But I'm not sure what to do about that in the short term. Well, thanks very much, Michael. Don't forget to check out uh, Michael Gibson's latest essay for City Journal. It's called America's Havana. It's getting a lot of attention. You can find uh, that and uh, an earlier piece by him on our website, and we'll link to it in the description. He's on Twitter, at William underscore Blake. And you can follow City Journal on Twitter as well, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And if you like what you've heard on today's show, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Thanks for listening, and thanks again, Michael Gibson, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.